Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Marty Durden. Dr. Durden is a veteran coach whose teams have won state championships in basketball, baseball, football, and golf over the span of nearly five decades. He's worked as an athletic director during that time. He's also an adjunct faculty member at three universities and is the author of More Than Winning, the Servant Leader Coach in Contemporary Society, which was released in December 2022. I hope you enjoy the next few minutes with Dr. Marty Dirk. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice, and I welcome today to our podcast uh, an incredibly experienced, uh, knowledgeable academician, coach, administrator, author. Uh, the guy can do pretty much anything. His name's Marty Durden, and he's coming to us from down in the great state of Georgia. Marty, welcome to the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to introducing you to our audience, which you know spans over 30 countries and over 40 states here in the United States. So welcome. Uh, Tim, I'm so honored to be here. I just appreciate this so much. Uh, it's, it's just a privilege to, to be here and to know you. Thank you so much. You bet. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Marty. Well, I'm uh, sort of one of those guys born in a little idyllic town down in South Georgia with one red light. Uh, uh, and those values that I sort of imprinted in my life have, have served me well throughout my career as a coach. Uh, I was reached, I guess you could say, the guys who got to me were coaches. They were not uh pastors or youth leaders or other people it was coaches the coaches found me and i i I just fell into that call as a coach when i was a real young guy and uh i think i was in middle school when i got on my first team and uh that's that's where i came from and I, i think i haven't strayed too much from those values in that small town well, and I, I can relate a little bit being uh, that I you know, grew up in Robertsdale, Alabama, which is just 20 minutes from Gulf Shores, Alabama, and just across Bay. I know where that is, Tim. Yeah. And, you know, to be, it's interesting because I know for me growing up, my parents were divorced. My dad lived three hours away and and he was there as much as he could be. But the the coaches in, in my life and others uh, who invested in my life helped me get to this place. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened for you. And I think that's probably true with a lot of guys in our position, too, and, and women in our position. Uh, the world uh, was different in our childhood, but the basic needs of us as people were the same. Uh, we, did, we didn't have all the technology, but our wants, our needs, what motivated us was still the same. We want to be loved. We want to have some figure in our life. It's a paternalistic or maternalistic uh, person, a figure in our life. We want someone we can trust. So some of those are timeless traits, you know, that, that don't change through the ages. We, we, you know, we speak about kids and how they're different today. I think maybe they're different in only the way we reach them. I think what they are, what they need is essentially the same as it was 50 years ago. And uh, they, they need coaches. And coaches have this standing that is unique to our profession. We have a podium like no other. I'm sure you heard the Billy Graham quote, right, about a coach can do more in one week than any preacher in America can do in a year. I believe that. And uh, – uh, I think that a lot of the problems that we have in our country are, are the, the, in the hands of coaches. You know, I, I think there's between 3.5 and 6 million lay coaches, the last I researched, in America with an audience of 60 million young people between age 6 and 18. Wow. If, coaches could just make that difference in those lives 
think how transformational that would be in our society. Yeah. It would be incredible. It, it would. And, and it, it, it kind of leads to a, a question I would have that kind of uh, jumps off a little bit, but is part of what you're talking about. And it's regarding the book you wrote, um, More Than Winning, The Servant Leader Coach in Contemporary Society. Do you think that um, when you wrote that, obviously a lot of this was based on uh, the research that you've done, but I mean, do you think that a lot of the things that you saw growing up in South Georgia are things that kind of uh, helped you want to re uh, write that book? Yeah, absolutely. That, that was where it was born. Um, it was a, one of those things, uh, I'm reaching this point in my life where, you know, I've been an active athletic director for 48 years. And so, uh, I don't think that retirement is a, a biblical concept. So I have a Jewish friend who told me this morning that the word retire is not in the Jewish lexicon. <laughs> it doesn't exist. So uh, I don't think if you're, if you're called like I feel like I'm called, and I bet you feel that same way to be a coach, I, I think you got to be uncalled. And I haven't heard that bell ring yet. And so I, I feel like that all I'm transitioning from, you know, just the day-to-day -day chores, the grind of being an athletic director and to a, a person, maybe like a sage where I can uh, take all these things that God sculpted in my life and taught me down through these years and help a coach or help a program to sort of identify how to motivate kids. And, and that research that was done was uh, entitled The Motivational Effects of Servant Leadership Coaching on High School Athletes. And I surveyed 3,000, and for the, for the uh, when I wrote my dissertation, I had surveyed 300. But since that time, I, I continued that research, and now it's over 3,000 kids. And it's amazing how what motivates kids has not changed. And, and this was a basically a, a Generation Z. Hey, if you believe in Generation Z and millennials and all that, you know, some of, some of my buddies don't necessarily agree with those timelines. But uh, I, I surveyed uh, Generation Z and millennials primarily in that time period. And what motivates those young people in traits that their coach possesses number one is trust and it rings loud and clear that they want someone a coach in their life that they believe in and and when you start dissecting and examining what they mean by trust it it's several things one of them is that you do what you say, you know, you keep your promises, you follow through on what you say. Another is fairness. And uh, the kids resoundingly tell me in these surveys and these uh, interviews that they want the coach <coughs> to play the best players free of politics <coughs> or any, any patronization, anything like that. They want a a coach who is an expert in their field, you can be the best guy in the world. But when you're standing in the huddle and you look up and see 10 seconds on the clock and you just called your last time out, they want somebody who knows how to, what to tell them to win that game, you know? And, and then they want someone who loves them. And that love that they want is a father figure in our lives. They want that paternalistic father. But the same applies to female coaches too. So those four things is what that center on trust. And that is what motivates kids in according to my research. And so that's what my book uh, was about, how you motivate kids in the philosophy of servant leadership. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's powerful and it's needed for sure in our industry, uh, especially and because honestly, youth sport is is really been challenged uh, in recent years with a lot of different things. 
And uh, oh, yeah. that you have a, a passion and a drive to do that. Um, now, you know, the next question is, is a kind of, it's not a loaded one, but because uh, your current position is you have many positions, uh, whether that's in volunteer roles with organizations like First Tee um, or FCA or whatever. But um, tell us a little bit about your current positions. I, I'm uh, I'm. Until June 30th, I'll be the athletic director at Calvary Christian in Columbus, Georgia. And I am an avid golfer. Uh, one of the things I just absolutely love, I think golf lends itself to honorable behavior, a great field to teach virtuous behavior. Uh, and so I volunteer for First Team. And uh, that's, they have a character ed program. In what I've read about this program, it's, it's one of the best you'll ever find. You know, they have these core values that they teach when they teach kid golf. And it's, it's fantastic. And I just really get a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment out of working with young kids in golf. And it's a great way to make friendships, it's a great way to build relationships. Uh, I, I also, my father and my father-in-law were both well, D-Day veterans. Uh, if you got a minute, I got a great story about our, my, those two. My Please. father was uh, on, you know, came in Utah Beach as well as did my father-in-law, my wife's father. And they were wounded on that beach. And this sounds kind of graphic, but they both had a, they got shot in the buttocks. <laughs> they got wounded, you know, it's sort of a flesh wound on the same day on the same beach and we're in the same hospital that went to St. Lo, France. And of course, 40 years later or whatever, I married, we married without knowing all this. And in the ensuing stories, probably we've been married 20 years before we figured it out. Wait a minute. Both of these guys got wounded on the same day, same beach. It's amazing. And then there we are, we get married. And so it was, it, it's kind of a funny story in a way. I, I bet they weren't laughing. But uh, isn't that amazing how connections occur in our lives? Yeah, it totally is. And uh, one of my past guests and a very good friend, Joe Nyland, who's the athletic director at Spring Hill College in Mobile, a former head men's basketball coach at both Spring Hill and Mobile, where I went to school, um, his family uh, was heavily involved in in that uh, in D Day and um, actually saving Private Ryan is based on his family. Oh. So yeah, wow, he, yeah, and he's told stories in a previous episode um, from last year on um, on that whole thing, and uh, and then all of his family members who came home ended up going into coaching, and there he is. Mm -hmm. and, of course, one of those people that came out of that uh, coaching family tree was John Beeline, the longtime head coach at at the college level, and ended up becoming the Cavaliers coach in the NBA. But um, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So um, you obviously you also teach for a number of uh, universities as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, uh, Concordia. I'm in the sports management program at Concordia in Austin, Texas, Bellhaven University in uh, Jackson. And uh, now Houston Christian, which just about a month ago was Houston Baptist in Houston, Texas. And those, those three programs are three good schools. And I teach uh, basically critical issue, current and critical issues. And at Concordia, I taught behind you one of those times. And I think it may have been a critical issues course. I can't remember. You designed it. I came in there behind you and some of the material was still in there. And that's, that was my first uh, introduction to you, man. I was impressed too, by the way. Well, you're kind to say that, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate because I have been in the online space too. And um, it's a great way to not only be able to continue to impact uh, folks that are going into the industry, but also you get a chance to go out and do other things like, you know, my involvement in mm -hmm. Moldova and Eastern Europe with the Christian organization, Admirals Basketball Academy or with Basketball Ireland. Oh, awesome. Lead, awesome. Yeah, so it's, it's been really good. And um, so, so tell me. Um, Does it energize you to engage with these? You know, most of those students are aspiring. Directors, 
coaches, do you get that same feeling of fulfillment? Yeah. To be able to mentor and pour your life. Those oh, kids yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I Me do. too. Yeah. And, and I think that that, I think because you're looking at people that are going after a master's degree, a graduate degree, even sometimes a doctoral degree, and, and you're trying, you know, they're trying to go out and make a difference. It's not just to get the degree. It's also to make That's a difference. Right. And there I say, hold the ladder for their athletes or the people they're going to be working with. And um, so you talked about growing up in, in South Georgia and um, you know, uh, your, the town you grew up in has a very interesting name. Tell me the name of the town. <laughs> You're very astute. I like this question. The town is Atapulgus. A-T-T-A-P-U-L-G-U-S, Atapulgus. And it is a Cherokee word for dogwood. So, I did, And there are quite a few dogwoods in that area. Uh, Atapulgus has a very uh, unique, distinctive mineral that's in the ground around there. And it's, it's called Fuller's Earth. Fuller's Earth is a white clay, like, you know, you hear about red clay in South Georgia. Well, this is a white clay that has unique qualities. And it's, uh, there are only a few deposits in the entire world. And it's the biggest one in America. All around Atapulgus there or is this mineral in the ground, white clay, you know, uh, Fuller's Earth. And they use this to, in oil refineries to make uh, filters. So all of us, all the 600 people that live there, every one of our fathers worked down Inglehard Minerals and Chemicals and all of our Sunday school teachers, everybody, you know, and at four o'clock, the whistle would blow for everybody to change shifts. And we knew dad was coming home and he'd be there in 10 minutes. So if you're doing anything wrong, you better straighten it up. You had 10 minutes. And uh, that is what's unique about that town. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would assume that you probably had a very interesting start in sports in Atapulgus. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was. Uh, we, uh, I was with one. One day, I was with one of my friends. I was in the. I, I was between the seventh and eighth grade. I think it was spring of my seventh grade middle school year. And and this is sort of the value of the impressionable. Uh, environment the impressionable availability of uh middle school kids if you reach them if you reach a kid in the seventh and eighth grade they're very vulnerable they'll listen to what you say so i was at a there was this little establishment um on the north side of that town there the pool hall and a little bar it was a sort of a rough place i mean it was not a terrible place in a little town like that but i hung out there a lot and uh, i had a, a real good friend and one day we were sitting there. I'd never played on an organized sports team in my life. And we were sitting there drinking a drink on the curb, Mountain Dew, I think it was. And a guy named Raymond Clyatt comes driving up. And he's getting out, and he was pumping uh, gas in his car. We had a gas station. It was sort of a, a jack-of-all-trades store, you know. And uh, he said, would you guys uh, want to play on my baseball team? I'm just starting a baseball team fact we're having our first practice today i'd never played an organized sport and i really just kind of wanted to sit on the curb and talk to my buddies there were four of us so the first guy's name was john i won't give you all that information but he said john how about you and he said no i'm not very good at sports then he talked to the next guy on the curb frank would you like to play nah I'm not good at sports either. Then he talked to a guy named James who said, I would, I would play if he will. And he pointed to me and I didn't really want to go. I'll be honest. And so I said, if, if I had a pair of shoes, I might be interested in playing, but I don't have any shoes. So coach Clyde goes over to his trunk, opens up a trunk, digs down, He's got balls, he's got bats, he's got catcher's equipment, he's got everything. And he finds this pair of shoes, cleats. They're not new, but they're decent. And he comes over and he says, hey, if these fit, you can have them. Doggone, they fit perfect. 
And, and what could I do? I had to, I kept, I kept my word. James and I got in that car. We drove off, and we never went back to that place again. And Coach Clyde was – he worked for Seaboard Coastline Railroad. He was a lay coach, and he poured himself into us and made a huge difference in our life. And to give you an example of that contrast, those two guys that were sitting there who didn't want to play, one of those guys died in, in drug rehab when he was about 35, 40 years old. The other guy had just had a tough life, you know, from poor choices. The guy who ran that place was murdered. And it's an unsolved mystery down that little town. And uh, here we are. You know, I've been coaching now five decades. And James is still my best friend today. And he's been a coach, you know, a lay coach down through all those years now. He's even got to uh, grandkids. He's coaching a soccer team. And we didn't even play soccer growing up, you know, but he's reinvented himself. Now, that's a coach who made a difference in kids' lives because without that day, without that old pair of shoes, I don't know where I'd be. And uh, wow. I thank God for that. So, so Raymond was basically the first ladder holder. Well, maybe not the first ladder holder in your life. Maybe your, your parents. He was. Were, yeah. He but, was the first rung of the ladder, in my opinion. When I, that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw the title of your podcast. He was the first step. Wow. And uh, he's just a wonderful man. And that's what I think is the value of servant leading. He was a servant leader. I didn't know it. I was a seventh grader. I just... And I wanted to have fun, but he took us from, uh, I, here's the way I say that he gave me a big pair of shoes to fill by giving me that pair of shoes. Yeah. And, um, uh, he, he batted 500 that day. He didn't, he didn't get it. He all of that apart, but he has made a difference in at least two guys' lives. May that's a amen to that. That's awesome. And I mean, do you do you have as you've uh, coached for over five decades, or like in, five decades of doing it? I mean, have you had other people have held a ladder along the way? Oh, everywhere. It's a uh, it's amazing. We had a uh, uh, Charles Bess uh, was a, a basketball coach in our school, and uh, he was he was a great figure in my life. When I, I went into the ninth grade, uh, I went into a new school and I fashioned myself as a basketball star. You know, I came from uh, as, as my coach, Linwood Mock, who was the, the head coach there, basketball at Bainbridge High. He said, you were uh, Durden, you were a big fish in a little pond. But now, buddy, you're a little fish in a big pond. And, and that's pretty well uh, described. So that first uh, year in basketball, I was at a very mediocre year. And Coach Mock called me in when the season was over and wanted to talk to me about setting goals. And we talked an hour. I loved Coach Mock. And, uh, but I can't remember a thing he said until right at the end of that conversation. And he said, there's nothing wrong with you that 10,000 shots won't fix. <laughs> and so I walk, I'm walking back to class, you know, and I'm thinking I'm in my little ninth grade mind, right? 10,000. I believe I could do that. Coach just told me that I'm in the NBA if I can make 10,000 shots. You know, that was the way I was thinking. So I went home and I started there. I ran to a gym, which is a quarter mile away. I had a key to it and I shot a basketball after school and I found that I could shoot. 10 shots a minute, no rebounder, just me, you know? So 10 minutes, hundred shots, 30 minutes, 300 shots, pretty good clip, but you, it could be done. So every day I went home and a Monday through Thursday after school and I shot 300 and I, my skill level just immediately almost spiked. And, uh, I'd realized, well, now I've got to keep a record of all this. So I started writing down these things. How many, you know, percentages, recording everything, make it a measurable 
and I'm, I didn't know what I was doing, but it all made sense, you know? And I was, my dad was feeding me information about how to do this, a dad who'd never played sports. Uh, and so, you know, it just made a big, huge change in my life. I, I made 10,000 shots that spring and didn't just shoot them. And, and I was a basketball coach for 30, 38 years. So just that one comment by coach made a difference in my life. And, and now the rest of the story is years and years later, I was coaching in Atlanta at a school and I walked, I was walking into my office one morning. I was athletic director there and I heard a kid crying. So I walked around the corner and I see this little kid named Jim sitting on the floor with his hands between his knees. He was a seventh grader. Just like I was when Mr. Coach Clyde found me just crying his heart out. And I looked up over his head and there was a cut list. The middle school coach had cut him. So what do you think I said to him? there's nothing wrong with you yeah that ten thousand shots won't fix and uh so he uh, it's a long story but that kid turned it just transformed his life and all i was doing was taking one more rung of the ladder right and that's how a coach who helped me i turned around and helped that kid and it made all the difference in in his life and uh when when Jim got in the ninth grade, he uh, tragically died in one of our basketball practices of a, a very rare heart condition. And um, when we went to visit, uh, that was on New Year's Day in, in 1986. We went to visit. That was uh, the day that they, we buried him. And um, his, we went to his bedroom and his mother gave me a piece of paper of, of Jim's goals that he had written down that, that, that morning that he and I talked, we wrote down this 10,000 shot, just like I described it to you. And he did that exact same thing. And she gave me that, that piece of paper. And I treasure that today. I keep it in my Bible as a marker to remind me that having a, a coach you one of those guys who made me a better coach so i would say one of the rungs in my ladder was a 13 year old boy and uh he made made a huge difference in my life wow like like seriously that's a powerful powerful story like a lot of times i believe that there are people that look at this uh industry and they think that we're the ones that do the holding of the ladder but in all fairness young people can do the same thing for us. And um, sometimes I think we forget that. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I think being a coach, being around kids, rubbing shoulders with young people makes us all better. And it's a process where we both make each other better. Uh, I ran into a guy one time when I was young and he asked me this question. He says, is what I, I did something mischievous and he got on to me and he was just a father of another kid. And he said, Marty is what you're doing, making you better. And of course I had to say, no, sir. And then he said, well, why are you doing it? And that's a simple question, but it's absolutely the truth. If we hang around people who make us better, that is, is just a simple a way of, uh, you know, trying to live in uh, what we're supposed to be doing. Some more great advice. I appreciate, I've really, really enjoyed already early on the, the stories uh, from your experience and background. And of course, you've been in the athletic industry for so many years and <clears throat> in your role at Calvary there. Um, you know, there are obviously challenges you face every day. And of course, you're also facing the challenges of teaching for three universities online. What, what are some of the biggest challenges you face on a daily basis and what you do? 
I think one of the biggest challenges all coaches have is time with their family. Uh, you know, there's a, you, you might could elaborate on this too, Tim, away from your family with other people's kids, you know. Uh, I remember we used to go to basketball camp in the summer, every, every summer on Father's Day. And I was with most of those times with guys who I wasn't their father. And uh, I think the time demands away from your family are my sources of guilt in my life. You know, where I feel like I've failed is I, I don't think I spent enough time with my kids. Now, we've had deep, in-depth talks with both my sons, and they don't agree with that. But, but I think your wife and your kids are, have got to sort of buy into your call to coach. And, uh, and I do think it's a call. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think God has a purpose for everyone in their life and we're called and it's an, it's what we're here for on this earth. But I would say that maybe the number one challenge, uh, is just time with your family. Uh, another one would probably be there's there's a lot of stress and that coaches are under high school coaches. Um, and what what I've seen as far as burnout goes, you know, the burnout rate is not as high as it used to be for coaches. It used to be excessively high back in the seventies, but now it's sort of moderated. But the workload is not the issue. Uh, what I'm seeing in these uh, studies is lack of support from the administration and second, secondarily is parental interference. Mm. Those two things are what get to coaches. And I think they're actually both joined together. Maybe uh, I think they're different side of the same coin. Uh, and I have, you know, I've never felt like, I was quitting the profession. I've never felt burned out, but I see so many of my colleagues, great coaches who are, especially when their kids are born. Uh, so that's a, that's a tough time. I think um, most vulnerable time in a high school coach's career is right after their kids are born. Mm. And I can't imagine how big a burden that is on female coaches who are mothers, how tough that's gotta be to uh, have a baby that you feel so, uh, responsible for, and yet you got to go to work, you know, yeah. and and be at ball games till midnight every Friday night and things like that. So I, I would say that those are the two biggest uh, challenges that we all face. I I actually relish in the hard work, and I bet you do too. I, yeah. I don't I don't have any regrets about working hard, but that those are the two issues I think that everybody the two crosses we all carry. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've been through, I burned out as a head college basketball coach in 2006. And um, I do think that, you know, since then uh, I, I think being able to understand, and there's just been so much uh, research that's come out in, in the last 16, 17 years uh, since that happened um, regarding burnout in the coaching industry. And, you know, I think that there are, ways that you can handle uh you can try to mm -hmm. uh, mitigate some of those issues but um i agree with you I yeah I've, I've had a guest on ryan briggs who's the sports information director at grove city college in pennsylvania where i served as an assistant coach and head coach of uh, several sports and professor or assistant professor in uh, for three years and he talked mm -hmm. about how burnout has become a major and really just self-care matters uh, in what he does. Um, and I so, too, uh, yeah, I think you're right too. And I'm, and I'm seeing in readings too, that uh, like you say, D2 colleges where the pay is not extremely high. Yeah. There's, there's not, you know, you know I mean, nobody, you're not going to see Nick Saban probably burning out or, or somebody at that level because the remuneration is so, so good. But yeah. when you're struggling to make it and you have to deal with all of these landmines in the profession, it really is a burden on kids. And, and those are really talented coaches to get to that level. I, I worry about what we're doing to 
coaches in their 30s and 40s that are coaching at smaller colleges. I, I just feel like we're wasting a lot of talent pool there because we're losing so many of those, especially I would say in I would say especially in basketball and volleyball, those two sports. Yeah. Uh, it just seems to me like those are the two. And, and that may be something professionally that all of us need to address and study and see, see what can be done. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I know, <clears throat> you know, you talked about, well, in the past, you've talked about your experience growing up and then your experience with the young athlete of the 10,000 shot uh, statement, which is just amazing. But like, Ultimately, I believe that it's all on how we uh, overcome the challenge that we face. I know for me, uh, I wouldn't be here now if I had not burned out in 2007. Uh -huh. And it's all a question of, you know, God used that to kind of redirect me in, a, in another place, uh, another way. Um, never thought I would be online education, uh, but it opened up a lot of other uh, opportunities for me. And, uh, and so that's something that, you know, I, you talked about earlier, you know, uh, God has a purpose and it's not always uh, something we even understand. Um, and, but, you know, we know that he's, he's got it down. <laughs> that's the big thing. I, you're, man, I, I would say amen to that coach. He, he does. And sometimes what we think is a bad thing is turns out to be one of the best things ever happened to us in our lives. Yeah. And I, I've seen that over and over in so, so many people's lives. And, uh, yeah. um, and you know, I, like you, uh, when these things happen in our lives, these tragedies and, and bad things, if we just stay in tune with God and, um, and listen and not get caught up in our own feelings and our own desires, uh, God will put us in the right place. Yeah. Uh, but I, my biggest enemy is Marty. <laughs> it's, it's not the devil. <laughs> it's me. I look in the mirror at that guy every morning. And uh, when I can get myself out of the way, uh, I think God uses me. I, I, remember, I remember going to uh, an FCA event up in Atlanta one time. Seems like it might have been Chick-fil-A Bowl. I can't remember an FCA breakfast prior to that. And uh, Bobby Richardson, the great second baseman from the Yankees, you know, my boyhood hero. That was, I love that guy. And he was called to pray at the end of the – I mean, he's a great speaker. And, and he walks up there, old Bobby Richardson, you know, and, and here, here was the benediction. He said, God, your will – Nothing more, nothing less. Amen. <laughs> what a prayer. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that a lot of times people, you know, we can only control what we can, right? And I know yep. um, with all the things that we, we, we have going within this industry, because there's always something that we have to get done. You know, uh, today yep. I've got I got a lot of work uh, that I'll be getting done today uh, as I get ready for the Christmas holiday and stuff. And, you know, but in the end, you know, if we've done all we can, that's really all we can do. And if we yep. get our best effort, I, I guess taking it back to John Wooden's uh, definition of success and, you know, just giving the best effort you can. Um, what yeah. a coach and what a philosophy. My, the coach that I've tried to pattern myself after more than anybody else, John Wooden. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you're right. Success is peace of mind and knowing that you did all you could to become the best you're capable of becoming. Amen. And, you, you hit it right on the, the nose there. That was a perfect definition uh, from him. And it's unfortunate, you know, well, I think that, that the contemporary coach today, the younger coaches, you know, I, I, I think that, they should lean more into Coach Wooden. I think maybe missed and uh, but kind of along the lines of Coach Wooden and all the things that he talked about and all things he stood for. You know, he also was big on the fundamentals of the game, but also the fundamentals of life. Now, what what skills 
within and really fundamentals, I suppose, would you consider to be essential for success as a sports professional? And that could be, you know, in sports marketing, administration, sales, coaching, you know, being an athlete. What, what do you think those are, the skills and fundamentals? Well, I think it's incumbent upon us uh, to be lifetime learners. We, we can't lay down our, you know, we, it, we, it's not a term. You and I both have terminal degrees, but you know, they're not terminal. We're, we still are trying to stretch what we know and trying to get again more wisdom, wisdom along with the knowledge that we have and connect those two things together. So I think that being a lifetime learner is, is huge. We can't stop learning the game and learning the ins and outs of our profession. And that's research, that's reading, doing what we're doing here, networking. I think that until the day we are gone, we need to be learning and learning something new. So I think that curiosity, you know, you and I were talking before you, you turn on the mic about um, Clifton Strengths Learner, and that, that was my number one. Was that was that in yours too, uh, Learner? Uh, yeah, fever? it was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, is, I think, is an essential skill, and then uh, the foundation of what we do is about people. It's about building relationships the ability to build and sustain those abiding relationships is just absolutely essential to what we do. Uh, we, in our profession, we are trying to serve others. And the, the whole tenet, the whole premise to servant leadership is taking people developing those people and trying to get the most out of their talents as people. And the end result is not to create followers. You know, we don't need followers of Marty Durden. We're trying to create leaders. And so I sort of gauge a guy by not his wins and his losses, but how many, how many lives have come out of his call, his ministry, his coaching career, how many lives have come out of there that are leaders and have, and have multiplied and helped others? That's, I think that multiplication effect is what we do. And it's all based on people. I, I got a simple philosophy and I'm telling you, I've been, I'm the luckiest guy in the world in this profession because I think I'm probably on the bottom 10% of brains in this profession, but I know how the secret is to get good people and they just make you look good. Uh, and it's just as simple as that. It's all about people, people yeah. solve problems. And on the other hand, people cause problems. So it's getting the right people in the organization and developing those people's talents. And sometimes redirecting a guy who thinks maybe uh, they're skilled in one area and they're not. I, I watched this. Uh, I don't watch much TV, but there's this thing. I think it's called the voice where these people get up and try to make a career uh, singing. And it's amazing to me how, how awful some of them are. <laughs> they, get up, they get up there and they're just, I'm thinking I can sing that good, but for some reason they thought they were good at it. Yeah. I think our job to a degree is helping people find out what you're, what you're good at it. And if you're not good at the job you're in, where is the spot that fits your talents? Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that's an essential skill. Um, and, and then I think too is um, being an ethical person. There's so many uh, in our profession, there's so many coaches have sullied up their rep reputations uh, with, you know, in this, in this quest to be successful by winning, and um, which is a, is a false standard of success. But so many have sacrificed their, their values to try to achieve something. 
And I, I just feel that very deeply and strongly that coaching has got to be an ethical profession. Um, what's that Shakespeare line? It says, um, for the good that a man would do is often interred with his bones, but the bad lives on long after he's gone. <laughs> and, and you think of the great Woody Hayes, who was a, a great coach, and uh, but he made one mistake, you know, on national TV one night. Clemson game. And the, and the Clemson's, and I think it was a Sugar Bowl, Gator Bowl, Sugar Bowl, I think. And, uh, and that's what everybody thinks of Woody Hayes. And all the good that he did is just gone. So I, I feel like we have to be that person in a, skip, in a skeptical world. Uh, when I'm researching these kids in these study groups that we're having, it's amazing how skepticism has uh, drifted into the mindset of young people. And maybe it's because they can check what you say. Because if you say, hey, I was I was a star player at blah, blah, university, within 10 seconds, they know if that's true or not. Because they got, they got it in, they got their cell phones, right? But, but kids are so full of skepticism. And so many institutions have let young people down, even, even churches, religious organizations. And, and our profession is not exempt from that either. And so I think the guy who stands tall, the lady who stands tall up for what's right in a world of skeptics, I think you have an outstanding platform as a, as a person. I think the essential quality for a coach is you got to be a good person. And yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you agree with that. Oh, totally. I, I think, <clears throat> you know, we have um... – no, I'd also, uh, I believe uh, this might be another Shakespeare quote, to thine own self be true. Um, oh, yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I think that we are who we are deep down, you know, when no one's looking, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yes, sir. Yeah. So I think that <clears throat> being an example and doing things the right way all the time and uh, you can't be perfect, oh, I get it. It's awesome. I got another story if you if we got another minute here. Sure. And uh, back in the, uh, I think it was the year two thousand nine, I was coaching golf at a school called uh, Brookstone School in in Columbus. Here, and we had we ended up that that group ended up being a dynasty in golf. We rattled off five consecutive state championships, missed one year, and then won the next one. So six out of seven years at the top level of golf, and. Uh, those guys were, it was a tremendous experience in my life. And uh, before we were good, we thought we were getting good. We invited the three best teams we could find to come and play a match and sort of gauge our medal, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a big match for us. And our crosstown rival, Columbus High, great program, great coach, good kids. And uh, doggone if we didn't beat them, you know, we won that thing. And we shot an even uh, 300. It was a rough conditions early in the year. We shot 300. And uh, the next best team was, was 302. And the TVs were there, you know, TV stations, the newspaper. It's a big moment for my boys, our first big moment, you know. And it was sort of new to us, and we really didn't know how to handle it. But, you know, it's one of those days when what you dream about actually happens. So normally I we sit down as a team and we go over blow by blow every shot, every hole, so that we can analyze, you know, what we did right, what we did wrong. But on that night it was dark because we had it relished in the basket of glow of that. So we went home without doing that. And I said, guys, come in at eight in the morning in the office. We'll go over all that. We went home in about an hour after I got home, I got a call from one of my players. He said, Coach, I got to tell you something. He said, I was going through all my strokes. And on hole number five, I put down a four. And Coach, I had a five. And I turned that in. 
And I said, well, you turned it in and you're a partner tested to it and everything. He said, yes, sir, coach. But honestly, I had a five. And I said, well, I got one question, man. Did, is you sure? And he said, I'm sure. So the next morning, we meet as a team in the office. And I started to say, and this is no, no joke. What I'm about to tell you is actually happened. We had a saying, you know, character is doing the right thing when no one is watching, just like you said earlier. And I started off, character is, and those guys in unison finished that quote. I was blown away by it. Yeah. And so we, I explained to them, you know, what happened. It's nobody's fault. And one of the guys on the team, the captain of the team, said, ah, coach, no big deal. That's no big deal. Uh, it's not our trophy. So we, the, our next score kicks in, we lose by one, you know, because you throw out the, the inaccurate card. Wow. So I took that trophy, drove across town to one of my best friends over there, a great coach, Chris Parker, in the Hall of Fame, and told him what happened. And he just kind of shook his head and said, you know, I, there's not many people would do this. He said, but you guys and your team, y'all are not made that way. And I've never forgotten that. That was one of the best compliments I've ever received. So we bragged on that team. We won a lot of titles. We won a lot of tournaments. But the best one we ever won was the one we gave back. Hmm. Man. So that's character, isn't it? Oh, oh I did. Totally. That's totally character. And uh, you bring up Brooke Stone and a very good friend of mine. I believe someone you know is Jimmy Messer. Um, oh gosh, what a great human being! Yeah, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was the uh, student coach when I got to Mobile College, and I basically was mentored by him his senior year. And uh, he's had a lot of success. Of course, he's at Jackson Academy now in Mississippi. Um, but his wife, um, my wife, uh, had a a good friendship when they met. When they met, and Jimmy's wife was doing a behind the bench ministry with wives, which is a great ministry, right? Yeah. And uh, Jimmy is a wonderful man. We need more guys like Jimmy Messer. Yeah, I completely agree. And along the lines of um, the industry and trying to find the right people, you know, you're also in the business of trying to find the right place for you, uh, for profession and in your profession. And so how important is networking in the field? I mean, how do you approach it? Oh, it's a, it's the whole thing. It's fall, it sort of falls under those relationships we're talking about. Yeah, uh, it's it's having friends. It's, I, I would do think there's some credence to this thing about it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, uh, but I don't know that I've ever actually filled out a job application in my life. It's always someone on the inside who knew me, and I was hired before I had to before I had to fill fill out my application. You know, it's uh. It's everything. And in our, in our lives, not just professionally, in our lives, it's the same, it's the same way. We, we hang around people who have the same interests and the same values, and uh, it just makes us better. It makes life go a lot easier. So I, I, I think, uh, how, how do you feel about that, Tim? Do you? Yeah, well, I think it has, it's all about relationships, period. I mean, you know, uh, I've used this uh, term in a couple of the episodes and, and with people that I mentor, it's called friend raising. You know, you talk about fundraising. Well, friend raising is, is about mm -hmm. relationships and helping people that want to get on your page to help you be able to get your organization or even yourself to the place you want to get to. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think networking is all about uh, being able to make a connection, um, you know, and really it's about the people, you know, you know, we've already talked uh, in this episode, uh, in this interview about people that we know, you know, and yeah, it's amazing. It? And here we are. It's our first actual conversation. Although, I kind of yeah. tripped over your uh, uh, slippers, you know, following you. But, uh, uh, but well, uh, we, yeah, and we're already friends. Hey, here, I, we've been talking thirty minutes, and yeah. it's like you're like my little brother or something here. Yeah, uh, no, I appreciate that. And you know, the the thing is, and for anyone listening, you know, Marty and I talked. You know, Dr. Durden is uh, is someone who teaches online and and is uh, wants to teach more. And you know, I was talking to him about a young man who 
at a school that uh, actually is one of uh, Dr. Durden's alma maters, uh, Bob Jones. That you know, I'm gonna I try to help them get an opportunity. Like that's what that's what networking is about. Yeah, that's it. It it yeah. is, and, and and I think that that. So for me, it's always been about just you know not being uh, uh, greasy about it, but just being true and genuine. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. It's just an authentic. Uh, it's just an authentic warmth toward people you respect, you know, yeah. and I've already gotten respect from you uh, just in this short time. Yeah. See, it's exactly what you are. We've got yeah. a kindred spirit, brother. Absolutely. And uh, being U.S. Sports Academy alums, uh, I, a question I would have would be, do you ever just pinch yourself and say, I earned a doctorate and I'm Dr. Marty Durden? I, I do. I, I just... I am educated way beyond my intelligence. Uh, and the academy, just so many real people there. Uh, Fred Cromarty, you know, was one of my mentors there. Yep. One of, the, one of the greatest guys in the profession. Taught me so much. And, uh, I, you know, I value that. Uh, again, he's one of the guys, hell on a ladder, you know. Yep. Uh, he, he, he helped me so much. And, uh, you know, when you're studying to be, when you're studying at that level and the difficulty of the subject and the time restraints, I'm coaching every day, trying to be a good dad and a good husband and, uh, and writing a dissertation researching every night, you know, and it, it gets tough sometimes. You, I guarantee you, you know, that feeling. And, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Cromartie just seemed to always know what to say to get me through those rough spots. And, uh, I want to be that guy for the students I teach uh, because I know how that is. Well, and that, and that's, that's it. I mean, I know for me, um, earning a doctoral degree in 2005 from the United States sports Academy was something I, you know, never, well, I thought I could all the way back to my freshman year in junior college at enterprise state junior college in enterprise, Alabama. And, uh, just south of uh, you there in Columbus. Um, I know where that is. Yeah. And, you know, being there and, and uh, taking a study skills class and said, you know, one of the exercises was, you know, a goal setting exercise. What do you want to be when, you know, you know, in 10, 15 years, I said, I want to go and I want to earn a doctorate. I couldn't even spell it. <laughs> uh, and uh and i ended up you know i ended up uh graduating from u.s sports academy oh boy it was uh, 12 years after i graduated from college from mobile college i had a doctoral degree and um wow. you know i feel very fortunate that it's helped me be able to impact people a lot of different places mm -hmm. and uh and you're doing exactly the same thing and and you've been doing it for way longer than i have so i oh, I, buddy, I, I tell you i just i would be willing to bet you that when mr clyde drove up and gave me that pair of shoes he didn't think i was going to end up being dr marty Durden, and i didn't either <laughs> well and and i think that it takes people that want to invest and and i i have stated this before to others that you know, we are the accumulation of those that have invested in us. And uh, we, we can't, we can't forget those people. And that's why I always bring up, you know, who mm -hmm. held the ladder for you that that's important. I think we need to recognize those people. Absolutely, man. I, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that quote from you. We are the accumulation that some total of the lives, people's lives that poured into us. I agree with that. Yes, it absolutely Feel blessed too. Yeah. And uh, so uh, as we're about to close here, I mean, what, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone deciding to start a career in sport? You kind of gave a little bit of that earlier, but what, what's one piece that you give? I, I think that um, it, when you feel called uh, at some point in your life, you, people, everyone's going to feel a call in their life. What, what do I do? Where am I supposed to be? Why am I here? Where am I going? All those basic questions uh is just make sure that you're gonna enjoy what you're doing and look like look 20 years down the road can i make a living doing this can i sustain this can i raise a family doing this can i make a difference in the world those four questions right there is what i would say 
those that's the advice I would give you. Coaches are not geniuses. I heard Luke Holt say, there's no coaching geniuses. If you're a genius, you'd be a rocket scientist. <laughs> They're just guys who work hard and love what they do. And I think that's it. You got to feel called. You got to feel like that you're going to be able to sustain that lifestyle, raise a family and live on the money you make. And that right there will make a difference in the world. And, uh, so my piece of advice is look 20 years down the ahead in the future and ask yourself those questions. And, uh, if God's calling you, Hey, read the book, read my book. There's a chapter in there on that. Read, uh, more than winning. Uh, explain it well. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the truth. And I'll make sure in the show notes that, uh, the, your book and how to buy it's there. Um, as we close, uh, this is a question I ask of all of our guests. You've already alluded to this uh, throughout the episode with lots of different things that you've done, but how do you hold the ladder for others? I'm telling you this, the amazing thing is that I was, uh, we have a young coach in our school and he is a tremendously smart, bright offensive coordinator. I'm trying my best right now to get him in the profession for the last year and a half. I have poured myself into this kid. He's an awesome guy. Name's Levi Dunn. He's the son of Joe Lee Dunn, the, the legend, you know, the guy who invented the three five. And um, he is just one of the products in my life that I've encountered guys across my path that I've, I've been able to witness their talent and their call and be a part of it. And any kid that, uh, aspires to be a coach. I'm sitting here looking at a, at the FCA picture in my study of old number 18. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture or not, but it's a picture of a little boy holding football. He's number. Oh 18 yes. I have seen that. Right. And, uh, and he's sitting here looking in that huddle. How many guys do we encounter in our lives like that? That man is 70 years old in that picture. Yeah. He lives in Valdosta, Georgia, if he's still living. But they took a picture of him at Black Mountain, you know, way back in the day. And that has sort of been the uh, distinguishing trademark or whatever of, of FCA. You see it on their literature, on everything they do. And that sort of encapsulates what I'm trying to do in my life. And you are too, Tim, is to embrace those guys whose path crosses yours and just, just walk beside them. We don't know all the answers. We don't know everything to tell them, but we can be there with them in this crucible called coaching and, and be the voice in their ear, a voice of wisdom, the voice of the guy who's been there, a guide, a mentor. And I think that's our call in life is to help those kids because we need to have more coaches. Coaches are transformational figures in our society. They, in my view, are the key to what is going to make America the future in our country. It's coaches, volunteer coaches who don't make money, who are out there because they love it. And I think that me, that's, that's the ladder I want to hold for those guys. And I'm holding it for Levi today. It's going to be another guy tomorrow. Yeah. And, and we've just got to be that figure in their lives. Powerful, powerful stuff. And I completely agree with you. And, um, it takes being selfless to do that. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, it takes investment to do that. And, you know, and Tim, I'm Paul, what, what you're doing right here, man, this is a wonderful podcast and what you're doing is making a difference, man. I just, I can't thank you enough for the life you live and what you're doing, what you stand for and the impact you're making on kids every day. And it just comes so naturally. You just do it because you were born to do what you're doing right now. I can see it. You just, God made you to be where you are right now. And I want to tell you um, how much that means to me. Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say, I, I think, you know, we all have uh, a purpose and we all have people that, you know, uh, your wife is invested in you. 
many, 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 many times. And my late wife, Candy, certainly did. Uh, wouldn't be here without um, without her investment in my life. And I think that, you know, being able to try to help people understand that, you know, like you were saying earlier, I, I don't claim to be anything special, nor do I claim to be smarter than everyone else. Um, but I do grind it out and I do do my best and give the effort that is needed and then some uh, to, to be the best. But I think that you have to also have people that inspire you. Uh, there's no Agreed. question. There's no question that you insp have inspired uh, uh, more than one generation of uh, folks that you've coached in uh, over five decades. And, you know, I so appreciate you uh, being a guest. Uh, how would you like uh, to close the episode? Oh, gee whiz. Uh, I don't know. The first thing that came to my mind, I, you know, God has a reason and for everything we do. And we don't always see it at the time, but God has a reason. And our job is just trust and keep, keep doing what we're doing. And that reason becomes clear as we keep walking. Amen. So what I believe God has a reason. Well, I so appreciate uh, everything that you are doing. I, I can't wait to see uh, what your future holds or what holds for you going forward as you continue. Um, uh, well, we're going to stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, we, uh, you know, in that old film, Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rain standing in the rain at the end of the movie, they look at each other and they say, I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> and that's where we are. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, and I appreciate you taking the time. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. You bet. All right. God so bless you, um, yeah, thanks. And um, so uh, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Um, one note to make uh, known, this is um, the second to last episode of the Holding a Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. On December 28th, we will have the final episode, um, and I'm going to be the guest in that episode. We have um, our uh, featured guest host is um, uh, T.G. Cahers Moore Trossing Kelly, who is a sports broadcaster and journalist in Ireland, and she will be interviewing me on December 28th. So, Stop on by and you can learn a little bit more about me and my journey and uh, the impact that some a lot of people have had on my life. And uh, we look forward to seeing you um, that on December 28th. But until then, go out and serve somebody. Go out and make a difference in the lives of some people. One person. Go out and make a difference and hold a ladder for somebody to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible. Take care. Thanks for listening, and until our final episode on December 28th, I challenge you to hold a ladder for someone to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible.